0: good morning chili bible just flew in from phoenix this morning boy are my arms tired sorry sorry you know you only get so many opportunities to tell a bad joke um serious enough i did i was in phoenix yesterday uh afternoon i got to share the gospel with a couple hundred guys at a wild game feast and that was a lot of fun and uh probably the worst night to be flying in late uh, of the calendar year, but nevertheless, uh, I got home, um, depending on what, what, how you count the time, about 1.30 in the morning or if it was yesterday or 2.30 in the morning if it was today. Um, but in any case, a great time, and uh, the Lord was uh, with us as we were able to share, we had uh, Had some folks that did come to Christ as a result, and so it was really a tremendous time. Um, So uh, certainly appreciate you guys being flexible with me being gone on Friday and that kind of thing. Uh, This morning, let me just tell you, if you are visiting with us, uh, we'd love to uh, extend our warmest family welcome to you. Uh, If you're looking to be part of a worshiping community of people, who love Jesus and want to tell other people about Him and serve Him and follow Him, then you have come to the right place, and uh, we'd love to have you be part of that family. Um, but like any family, the church is not immune from fighting, is it? Right? If you've been married longer than 10 minutes, maybe less if you're in our house, uh, <laughs> Seriously, um, like I say, we got we had, we had our first fight leaving the reception of our wedding, uh, and um, but it, but you know the thing is one sinner plus one sinner does not equal zero sin right. It's kind of how math works, right? One plus one equals actually it equals more sin together than apart, and and when you at, aggregate together a bunch of people who are sinners, you're going to have not only sin, but conflict, right? And so the question is not whether or not you're going to have conflict in the church, but how you're going to deal with it. And, uh, and, it's, and it's going to come. And I honestly think that the process of resolving it is a part of our ongoing process of sanctification, of learning to love each other and learning to uh, bear with one another and learning to deal with one another and forgive each other. Uh, love being, means being willing to sacrifice your rights and your desires for the good of someone else. And if you've, uh, if you've ever been a good friend or you've ever been married successfully for very long, you already know that, right? That, that being married successfully or being in a good friendship or being part of a church over a long period of time is going to involve laying your life down to a degree and being willing to sacrifice for the good of other people. And that it is not... All about me. That as you stand and and look in the mirror, you don't go, you know, if everybody was just like me and would give me exactly what I want, then life would be good. (laughs) Right? That's not how the world is. And in fact, the church, to the extent that people all have to have their way, it's a mess. And the church in Corinth had forgotten how to love one another. They had forgotten how to, uh, how to disagree without being nasty, how to, how to forgive each other, how to extend grace. And some of these folks were actually, believe it or not, they were involved in disagreements within the church, and they couldn't resolve them at church, so they decided, I'll just take you to court. I'll sue you, and we'll get a judge to tell us which one of us is right. And so Paul is beginning this chapter in chapter 6 by, this is the start of a major section where he starts correcting them on various issues that they're involved in. This is the third round. You know, this is like, it's like a prize fight. They go round and round and round, and Paul keeps coming back to the conflict within the church. And so if you've got your Bible... Uh, I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Uh, You know, as I've outlined the book, as I said, this is the third time in six chapters that Paul is addressing the issue of conflict and fighting and factions and divisions within the Corinthian church. And so I think it's safe to say, since he has come up three times in six chapters, that this is a relatively big issue for them. The church had lots and lots of problems, but the one of the biggest problems that they had was all of the divisions they had among their body. And this is not a huge group of people. You know, this is not like you know, this is not like ultra mega, you know, super huge church of 20,000 folks. This is a small group of people. This is not Preston World Baptist Church down there in North Dallas, which is like thirty thousand people on a ninety-acre campus. You know, have bus service between the buildings. <laughs> you know, it's not that kind of a place. This is a little small spot. As the church is just getting started, and they are just racked uh, with conflict. And and before we get we dive in a, a little bit, I want to tell you a little bit about the Roman legal system. Roman law was often a whole lot better in theory than in practice. In theory, justice was blind and the laws apply equally to everybody. In practice, what happened was, generally speaking, it was a very stratified society and everybody had kind of their own social level. And if you were a high-ranking person, socially speaking then the court system almost always decided in your favor. Almost always. And one of the reasons for that was not just that you were higher social status, but also it was because you had the money to be able to grease a few palms in the judicial system on your way through. And if you were poor, you very often not only couldn't afford good counsel to represent you, but you didn't have any money to, you know, come to an understanding with the judge. And so it was a system that was radically tilted toward the wealthy and powerful and uh, and toward the oppression of the poor and weak. And so... Paul, and on top of that, you could could eventually, and people did this, you could advance in society This is a face-based culture where you would lose face if you lost your court case and you would gain standing if you won. And so one of the ways, believe it or not, as crazy as this sounds, to gain social standing was to sue someone at approximately your social level because as you would sue them, if you could bribe the judge and you would win then then there'd be a big announcement in the paper or whatever you know, hey, Joe won his case. Oh, And what would happen is that social contacts and uh and money and people wanted to flow toward those of higher status, and so you got it got to where you couldn't do business unless you know, were connected to the right people. And so if you lost your case, you not only lost social status, you started to lose money and started to lose your ability to even make money and maintain what social status you had. And so you got to actually have a system of competitive suit and countersuit as everybody's trying to claw their way to the top of the greasy pole. And what is happening in the church at Corinth is that people who have been converted out of an environment in in which this is the way to rise in society is by basically clawing your way up the back of everybody else have brought those values and those practices into the resolution of disputes within the church. And everybody has decided they want to all be top dog within the church. And it's, of course, a totally inverted value system from that of those who follow Jesus. And let's remember, we follow a man who was sold by his best friend for 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. And then he died a slave's death naked outside the city gate with his clothes being sold off and then buried in a borrowed tomb. This is not a way following that guy is not considered socially advantageous. And yet people want to embrace Jesus on the one hand and still maintain all of their cultural stuff on the other. And there's a fundamental conflict between trying to beat up your way <laughs> up the, up everybody else, through everybody else's life, you know, stepping on everybody uh, on, all on, on the way through the church as a way of somehow advancing to a position of leadership. And yet that's what people are trying to do, and they're suing one another as just one aspect of this. And Paul, when he hears about this from the church at Corinth, is, first of all, shocked that they would take personal disputes between believers to the secular courts. And it's not that Paul doesn't recognize the authority of the secular court system. I mean, Paul is in it, part of his life. And on top of that, in Romans 13, he says, you are to obey the authorities because the authorities are are put there by God for the punishment of evil and for the praise of those who do right. And you're to obey the secular authorities. And if Paul could say that about Nero, I can assure you he would say the same thing to you and I about the authorities in our life. And so Paul is not against the secular court system or against the secular system of government, but what he is saying is, look, there's a fundamental inconsistency here between what you are doing and how you are treating one another and who you are as believers in Jesus Christ. Because here's the deal. You will one day rule with Jesus over the entire world. And yet somehow, within the church here, you cannot figure out how to settle a petty argument without going to the legal system? Really? I remember that Seinfeld episode where Kramer and uh, Newman are playing Risk, you know? They've got, all the, they've got the board laid out, and it's hours and hours, and it's high intensity and so forth. And uh, Jerry l- says to, uh, what's the gal's name? L- Elaine, yeah, yeah, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, right? He says, two men playing for world domination who can't run their own lives. Right, <laughs> and, and, and that is the idea that Paul is saying here. You're going to one day rule the entire world with Jesus, but you can't figure out how to solve an argument over, let's say, paint color in the church. How is that possible? How is it possible that people who are, in, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God who are possessors of membership in the family of God, who are, who are being transformed by the Spirit of God in obedience to the Word of God, can't resolve petty conflict. And he is absolutely floored that they're unable to do this, and that instead they have to result, resort to some unbeliever telling them how to live. And he says, don't you know you're going to judge the angels? Now, let me be careful here. I don't think that believers uh, take, take part in God's judgment. In other words, you know, we don't send people to hell or anything like that. But what he means is, you know, Paul is a, is a, Paul's a Jew. And if you remember, there's a book in your Old Testament called Judges and these judges were not necessarily people who uh you know sat in a bench and wore a robe and a you know white powdered wig and said you're to do this you're to do this the fine for what you've done is this Th- that wasn't their role their their role was as rulers of the people of Israel and if you look back at your bible in uh I believe it's uh, Psalm chapter 8, verse 5. It talks about how human beings are made for a little while lower than the angels. But the idea is, is that eventually there will be a reordering in God's system. So that those who are believers, those who have been saved through believing in Jesus Christ will one day be higher even and rule over the angels. Now imagine that. Just imagine that. You know, you think about what the angels did and what kind of power that they have. You know, it was, the, it was an angel who led the people of Israel through the wilderness. It was an angel who delivered... Jerusalem from the Assyrian army, and one angel took out the entire Assyrian army of 185,000 soldiers in one night. Now, I don't know what kind of a warrior you have to be to make that happen, but I'll assure you that the angels are powerful and we who are believers in Jesus Christ, will one day be elevated above the angels. Why? Because we are the adopted sons of God. Which means that we have a status as as adopted into God's family virtually equivalent with Jesus, who is the begotten Son of God. Now think about that. Right? Right? And Paul is saying, don't you realize who you are? Don't you realize because of your belief in Christ what awaits you? And yet somehow you can't figure this out? Really? That's his question. Uh, If if that's true for all eternity, how is it you're incapable of settling things in the church here and now? Is the wisdom of the unbelieving really so superior to that of those who have the word of God that you have to go to them? But that's what their actions indicate. And so Paul really taken them to task. And verse 4 here, if you look at it, there's a little bit of a translation difficulty that's there um, about uh, those who have no standing in the church. And you can take it a, a, about three different ways. You can take it as an imperative, depending on how you look at the verb, you can take it as an imperative, and if you do, then you wind up with a translation like the NIV and the King James, where the idea is those who have no standing in the church are believers, you know, those who are regarded as of no account in the church, those who have no status. And the idea is, appoint, if you can't solve this stuff, well then appoint people that you don't regard as very smart. Because even the least of the people among you ought to be able to solve this. In other words, find somebody that you, that you who are so concerned about status thinks isn't all that high status and have them solve it. And that would do, if that's what he's saying, That would do two things. Number one, it would bring a lot of that conflict and suing one another and so forth to an end, uh, not only because they wouldn't be taking it outside, but also because, in their thinking, they had nothing to gain by having their suit decided by a low-status person. So that's one way of taking it, and that's the way the NIV goes. Um, uh, There are also... There's also the idea that um, it could be a sarcastic statement, where he is saying, "You are actually and 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 here, those who have no standing in the church are unbelievers." And he says, "And it's a kind of a sarcastic statement. Can you actually be appointing as judges people who?" don't have any relationship to Jesus whatsoever. And that could be, and then some translations go that way. I like the ESV where it says here uh, on verse four, why do you lay them before those where it's a question? Why do you have, why do you lay those before people who have no standing in the church? And again, it's unbelievers because the whole idea is that's what they're doing. They're going to unbelievers and he says, why, do you, why are you doing that? If all these things are true, why are you doing that? Um, the whole idea, again, of, uh, that Paul is underlining all through the book of 1 Corinthians is that if you believe the gospel that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was crucified for our sins and was raised from the dead, if you believe that, there are implications there are things that, that ought to be a certain way in your life and that ought to work itself out because Jesus it is, the, is God and He rules over your life and He therefore has the right to tell you how to live and how to live out the gospel in these various areas. And... And the idea that you would therefore be more concerned about status than about your brother and your sister in the church is totally antithetical to the gospel. Because this is, after all, someone for whom Jesus Christ died. And so the idea that you would beat up on them or take them to court is just crazy. He says, look, surely there's somebody within the church who's smart enough to solve this. And if there's not anybody smart enough, appoint the least important guy (laughs) and have him solve it. And then verse 7 and 8, he continues. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And, and here Paul has kind of a play on words with the word loss. He says, it's already a loss for you that you are even doing this. And so why not lose deliberately? Why not choose to lose rather than suffer loss? And the idea is it's much better to lose face and, and even material losses, even to lose money, than to lose spiritually if you win your court case in secular court. And the reason is, is that if you win, if you take your fellow believer to court and you win, you have still lost, and here's what you've lost, not much, just the fact that you have brought Jesus and the gospel into disrepute, that you have made it seem like the Christian life and the Christian faith is absolutely no different and no better than unbelief, you probably ruin relationships with your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. But other than that, it's no big deal, right? And Paul says, look, given the costs, given the costs, isn't your relationships within the body of Christ worth more than even a substantial amount of money? Or a substantial amount of social standing that you might gain? Isn't a person, is, who is my brother or my sister, worth more? You know, I have one brother and I have two sisters. And if they call me and they need something... If it's within my ability or power in any way, I'm, I'm there. I'm doing it. Why? Because they're family. It's my brother. That's my sister. That's my niece. That's my nephew. I'm there. I, I, don't, even, I don't even have to think about it. For that matter, I don't even need to pray about it. Because I already know the right thing to do. My brother or my sister is in need. I got to help them. And I'm not going to take advantage of them. Why? Because they're family. And Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying, look, these people are family. Far better to suffer loss. Those of you who are parents, have you had any costs? So, shoot your hand up if your kids have been free. <laughs> okay, because I'd like to talk to you, figure out how to do that, right? You make enormous sacrifices for your kids, right? At least if you're a if you're a half decent parent, you make enormous sacrifices. How many of you have sat down and and really thought about how, you know, like worked out how much each each one of your kids costs you on an annual basis? I'll bet none of you. Right. Karen and I do joke that we will eat a lot more sushi when the kids are grown. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah, we'll see. Right. But um, but you don't count the cost. You don't write. You don't go, well. You know, you don't, you're not trying to balance it out and go, you know, you cost me $3,000 in groceries alone this year. You know, you don't tally that up. Why? Because it's your kid and their family, and you love them. And, and basically, kids are like a, a net resource sucking machine, <laughs> right? Right? You know, and, and that's, but, but but you know that going in. When you decide to have them, you know that. You know there are going to be costs. And, and the thing is, is if the body of Christ really is a body, and if it really is a family, you know there are going to be costs. Or at least you ought to. You ought not go into a church assuming that, No one's ever going to hurt my feelings. I'm never going to be offended. And relationships with others in the body of Christ are going to cost me nothing. In the same way you wouldn't assume that having kids is going to be a universally pleasant experience which will be completely free. Right? If you believe that, talk to a mother who's got a baby that's about eight weeks old about how much sleep she's getting <laughs> and, and how tired she is about the cost and whether or not it's worth it. To a woman, even as exhausted as they are, they will say, absolutely, it's worth it. It's my child. It's my child. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up my baby for any amount of money. And the same thing is true within the body of Christ. Amen? If we really love one another, then we don't worry about what the costs are. We worry about the relationship with the person. Because why? We love them and their family. Let's look at some more of this. Verses 9 down through verse 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such... Were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now, there are two reasons why that paragraph is there. You know, whenever you're reading your Bible, and by the way, I recommend that, it's a good thing. I know that sounds maybe obligatory from your pastor, but seriously. It's a good thing to read your Bible. And when you're reading, one of the best questions you can ask yourself is, why is this text here? And what I mean by that is not why did God put this in the Bible, but why is it in the spot that it's in? And and there's two reasons for it. One is that it's a transition paragraph between dealing with lawsuits and fraud... Some of these people are actually using the law to swindle one another, and that's obviously sin, right? And so Paul wants to address, uh, address that, but then he's also making a transition between that topic and another area where they're in sin, which is dealing with sexuality, and that's next week. Uh, we'll get into that. And so he says, look here, you've got, you've got this kind of behavior going on within the church of people who are defrauding one another, and then, as we'll see next week, people who are being sexually immoral. And he's saying, look, you've got to understand that what you're doing is what unbelievers do. And you better be careful that you aren't one of them, even though you are attending church. Because if you look at it, verse 9 here, it says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He is implying they should know that. Amen? It's something he taught them. It's something that we should know, too. And here's the, here's the, the, the real truth on this. Sinful people do not go to heaven. They don't. Willful Unrepentant sinning, like the kind Paul lists right here, is evidence that you don't know Jesus. It's evidence that you don't really know Jesus. Because God is not in the business of simply whitewashing sin. He is in the business of transforming sinners. Amen? And so he says, look, you've got to consider this kind of stuff. And so let's look at the list. He starts off with the sexually immoral. It's the word, literally it reads pornoy, And it's a form of, of, a, of a word that's just kind of a, what I would call a junk drawer word. Everybody have a junk drawer at their house? we got one next to the stove. You know, we've got batteries, we've got flashlights that don't work, scotch tape, potholders. We've got all kinds of stuff in there. I don't know how that tradition gets started, but everybody's kind of got one. And it's kind of a collection assortment of stuff. And within this word, poinoi is a broad variety of things. And it's a generalized word for sexual immorality. So it includes not just premarital sex, but also things like swinging, pornography, bestiality, friends with benefits... You know, whatever, you know, you can come up with if you don't think, you know, well, God didn't specifically include my thing, it's included. It's a junk drawer word. It's very broad. So, and, and the reason that Paul uses it is because he knows that sinners in their perversity a lot of times will go, well, you know, Paul left out this thing. And so that must be okay. No, not okay. Okay? Uh, there, there are, biblically speaking, there are three kinds of relationships that you have. And I'll get into this more next week. But there are three kinds of relationships that you have. You have family relationships, you have neighbor relationships, and you have marriage relationships. And marriage relationships, uh, we'll look at this when we get to chapter 7, sexual contact is commanded. But in the other two kinds, they are prohibited. You don't have sexual contact with family, unless you're talking about your wife or husband. Uh, And that's obvious, right? Everybody should nod right here and go, yeah, you don't do that. Uh, And then... And then on top of that, anybody who is not family is your neighbor. They're your neighbor. And you don't have sexual contact with them either. And by the way, those of you who are single, just let me tell you, there is not a fourth category, biblically speaking. A lot of times people want to make one and they call it dating, courting, what have you. And they say, well, see, we're dating, so we get to have a little bit of sexual contact. No. This person is either, is either your neighbor or they're your spouse. If they're a believer in Christ, they are a family until they are your spouse. And sexual contact is not permitted. But with, once you get to marriage, it's commanded, and so then you enjoy. But and there is no fourth category of relationships. And so whatever, you know, level of perversity somebody is into, this covers it. But just in case people are confused, he specifies a little further. He says, nor idolaters. And idolatry obviously includes things like, you know, Karen and I one time as a class assignment when I was at seminary, went to the uh, Hare Krishna temple in Dallas and, and. uh Serious enough, they pull back a curtain, and they got behind it a metal grate with this little idol that they offer food sacrifices to every day. And they dress in different clothes every day. Put new clothes on the idol, and they offer him food. And when the curtain came back, I, I, I swear to you this is true, I leaned over to Karen and I said, Behold the great Oz. Okay. <laughs> and, and people get down on the floor in this temple and they bow down to this thing. Now that's idolatry. But other things are, can also be idols with or without the statue. Amen. So, you know, if you're into cars, that's fine, but be careful. That you not worship and serve this thing that you drive. Or don't, but leave parked in the garage. You know. uh, it's fine to have a job, but if you worship and serve and build your life around this thing, that's idolatry. It's fine to make money, but if you pursue making money at the expense of everything else, including your relationship with God, that's idolatry. It's sin. It's what unbelievers do. And he says, also not adulterers. If you are married and you are sleeping with someone who is not your spouse, you're an adulterer. If you are watching stuff on the internet and you are married that you ought not be watching, and you know what I'm talking about, you're an adulterer. It's sin, it's evil. And then he says men who practice homosexuality. Uh, Here he uses two different words, actually, uh, so that he covers both halves of the relationship. And I'm not going to clarify that. But but whatever kind of homosexual you might be, you're covered. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards. In other words, people that we would today, we want to say that they're sick and that they're an alcoholic. Paul calls them a drunkard. They're in sin. Why? Because being a drunk is a form of idolatry where you worship and serve whatever is in that bottle. And it's elevating that as the center of your life rather than God. Being greedy is a similar form of idolatry. To act as if money is the center of life is to dethrone God and put the almighty dollar in his place. If you work on Wall Street, you've got to be careful right here that you're not greedy. Heck, if you're poor, you've got to be careful that you're not greedy. And act as if money is is the cause of all kinds of prosperity and happiness and joy in life. That's greed. Nor revilers. Revilers are somebody who slanders people or blasphemes God. Or swindlers, which is what some of the Corinthians are doing, is defrauding and swindling each other. He says, none of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Is it because they lost their salvation? No. Biblically speaking, you cannot lose that which you never possessed. And if you are engaged in this kind of behavior as someone who purports and professes to be a believer, it is evidence of a strong variety that you are not saved and never were. And on top of that, the Bible says that you can't lose your salvation, that you are born of an incorruptible seed, Peter says. Uh, Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 30 and 31, he talks about how those who are his, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and I give eternal, that is everlasting. No one ever used to have what was everlasting. He says, I give, I give eternal life to them and no one can take them out of my hand and my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can take them out of my Father's hand either. So in other words, if you really know the Lord, you cannot lose your salvation. However, if you're engaged in this, you better be careful because you're giving really solid evidence that you don't in fact know Jesus. Because Jesus transforms those whom he saves. Amen. And this is real serious. In fact, look at verse 11. He says, "Such were," and I love the past tense. Such were some of you in other words this is the kind of stuff you used to do as unbelievers all this whole long laundry list of grossness says you all used to do that stuff but you ought to circle that word you know they don't in bible prints you know they don't they don't put stuff in all caps like when you get a one of those angry emails from somebody, you know. But you ought to put that word but in all capital letters right there because that word right there is underlining what Paul is saying. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In other words, you have not only been given new life, you have been given the power to live out the new life. You not only have righteousness imputed to you through the death of Christ, in other words, credited to you, to given to your account, although you had no righteousness of your own, you also, through the Spirit of God, have righteousness imparted to you by which you are changed and made to look like Jesus, so that you leave this junk in the past where it should stay. And Paul is saying, you've got to be careful. Don't be confused. If you are still doing this stuff, maybe you never experienced the change that Christ brings. Because if there has been no change in your life since you trusted Christ, maybe it's because there has been no change and you haven't really trusted Christ. You've got to be careful with this. Lots and lots of people. I know. I knew a guy one time, he was involved in adultery. He had about eight children, been married to his wife for 27 years, and he walks out on her for a woman he works with. And the elders and I sat down with this chap, and we said, Hey, dude, you need to repent. You are out with the pigs. It's time to go home. And he said to us, Well, I know that God will forgive me, so I will just confess later after I have had my fun. And we looked at him and we told him something like this. Brother, you need to be very careful. Because if you are a believer, one day the shepherd of the sheep is going to come after you and bring you back to the fold. But he may not do so in the most gentle of of means. But but every day between then and now, you will have biblically justified reason to doubt that you ever knew the Lord. You've got to be careful right here. Because if that is your attitude toward the grace of God, it's a very dangerous attitude to take. It's one that an unbeliever takes. That, well, of course God will forgive me. That's his job, right? As if somehow God owes you what he has sacrificed his son to give you. Okay, I'm over time. Uh, Let me wrap this up. A couple things for us to remember. It's better to suffer wrong than to do wrong. Better to suffer wrong, if you have to, than to do wrong. Better to sacrifice yourself for the good of others in the body of Christ than insist on your rights and do damage to the Jesus and the gospel. It's not to say it's okay to do wrong to everybody and, have, and they have no recourse but to just endure your pain. You know, no, if that's the way you operate, we will put you under church discipline as we saw last week. That is not okay. But if it comes down to a choice between sacrificing for somebody's good and insisting on you being right to the exclusion of the relationship with the person, it's far better to suffer and sacrifice than to insist on having your way. And I've underlined this already, but be sure you really know Jesus. Be sure you really know Him. The list of sins here at the end is pretty serious, and yet there are a lot of professing Christians who are guilty of more than one. And God, in what He says here, is very, very serious about this. And remember what Jesus said. He said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not in Your name And there's a long list of spiritual stuff. And he says, then I will say to them, depart from me, you who do evil. I never knew you. If you're not absolutely certain that you have made a real commitment through faith in Jesus Christ, to knowing him and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you know, that results from that. Please talk to me because literally eternity is at stake here. Be sure you know Jesus. And last, live out your identity in Christ right now. Because remember, Paul says, you are one day the people who will judge the angels, who will rule over the angels, who will rule over the entire world, who will rule the universe as sons of God. And so that ought to impact how we live right now. Amen? If that is true of me, if it is true that I am a person who has been washed, who has been sanctified, who has been justified by the blood of Christ, and who has the indwelling power of the Spirit within me, it ought to change who I am and how I live. Amen? If that is my identity, then I ought to be seeing God at work in me. And I ought to be committed to living in a way that brings God honor and glory and praise. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace to us. We thank you for your tremendous mercy in sending Jesus Christ to sacrifice himself for our good, to lay down his life. Though he had done no wrong, he chose to suffer wrong that we might be made right with you. And, Father, we, uh, we praise you for that. In fact, we cannot cease praising you for your grace and mercy revealed to us through Jesus. Father, I pray that we would live lives that are mightily empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey your word and to, and to live in such a way that we are not only pleasing to you, but putting to death the sin within us that we are so easily ensnared by. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here, boy or girl, man or woman who has never put their trust in Jesus Christ or who just isn't sure if they died today where they would go, I pray, Father, that today for them would be the day of salvation and that they would talk to me or one of the elders or a friend that they came with and figure it out, how to believe, how to put their trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins and was raised from the dead. Father, I pray you would bring them to new life.